Now, before we look specifically at the parable of the sower this morning, I think it's very helpful to consider Jesus' parables in general. Now, it's been said by many that everyone loves a good story, and evidence for this truth can be found in, in many ways in many different sources. One can be found in a recent study that was done that determined, I don't, this, this baffles my mind that, that this can be true, but, um, but the study says it is, so I guess I'll believe it that Americans spend on average five hours a day watching television. Five hours. How can you do that? I don't even know how you can do that. My eyes would get tired from watching television for five hours. Uh, not only that, but evidence for this reality about us loving stories can be found in, in another, not study, but somebody compiled some numbers, added up some things, and determined that our country, the people in our country, spend collectively $30 billion a year on movies. That's going to the theaters, watching Netflix, going to the Red Box and renting a movie. $30 billion. In, in light of this, one Christian author reflecting on these things said that, that we humans are story-addicted creatures. And I believe that this love for or addiction to stories is why so many people, even non-Christians, enjoy Jesus' parables. Now there are, of course, some really good reasons to enjoy the parables. First and foremost, they're part of God's word. And so in, in a sense, we should enjoy everything that's in there. But, but there's something about the parables that the believer, many believers, kind of resonate with. There's these, these visual pictures, these everyday ordinary scenarios that, that we can relate to. Uh, those are some good reasons for, for appreciating the parables. But some prefer Jesus' parables for the wrong reasons. They see them as being less dogmatic or what they might call religious because unlike Jesus' other teachings, most of the parables do not explicitly call for a person to repent of their sins or to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one can come to God the Father except through, through him. Many of the parables do not seem to, at least at first, address God's design for marriage, sexual immorality, drunkenness, or idolatry. Uh, so they, they're, they're kind of safe for the non-Christian in this way. And this means, if you approach uh, the, the parables this way, that uh, there's something like Aesop's fables, you know, like the boy who cried wolf. They, they teach us moral lessons about how to be better people. Uh, that, that's maybe the best way, if you have a wrong view of the parables, to, to see the parables. Uh, and, and the worst way would be to, to see them as uh, being open to your own interpretation. They have many different uh, possible interpretations, which allow a person uh, to determine how or even if the parable applies to their own life. They're, they're kind of up for grabs. Well, this wrong view of Jesus' parables can quickly be dismissed, set aside, maybe even destroyed, we might call it, by what Jesus says in this morning's passage are the purpose for his parables. So what is Jesus' purpose for using the parables? Well, we find his answer in verses 10 through 12. Jesus gives us two reasons for teaching in parables. First, Jesus says in verse 11 that he uses parables to reveal the secret of the kingdom of God. In this way, we might see Jesus' parables as something like a window that allow the believer to look in and see what God's kingdom is like. They're, they're like a window. Uh, they, they help us to see this kingdom that has now in Christ come near. Remember earlier in Mark, we saw Jesus speaking of the kingdom that has now come, and the reason why that kingdom had come is because Christ had now come, and Christ is the king of the kingdom, and he's establishing his rule and reign on earth. And so those who, who are believers, who, who have what they need to, to rightly see the, the parable as it should be understood, are given a window through the parable to see the kingdom of God. 
The second purpose of Jesus' parables, which seems to, at first, at least contradict this first purpose of the parables, is that Jesus uses the parables to conceal the kingdom of God. First, he uses them to reveal, and now we see that he uses them to conceal the kingdom of God. Parables put up a wall that prevents people from seeing into the kingdom of God. In this way, they produce confusion and pronounce God's judgment. If you don't truly understand, if, if, if you don't have what you need to, to rightly see this parable, well, they pronounce judgment. If you go through the parables, every one of them has a sense of judgment and confusion. Nobody likes to be confused. That's not, that's not a blessing. And so these parables ultimately lead to judgment for those who, who it does not, these parables do not reveal God's kingdom to. Jesus speaks of this purpose of his parables in Mark 4.11. After the crowd left and only his disciples and those who were following him remained, he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Then he quotes from Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10 and verse 12. And he says this about the parables. He speaks in them so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So Jesus' parables are not stories that teach us good morals and they are not open to whichever interpretation somebody wants to give to them. They provide us with a window, at least some of us with a window that reveals the kingdom of God and they provide others with a, a wall that conceals the kingdom of God. But when is a parable a window and when is it a wall? Uh, to, to say this in a, a different way, uh, what determines whether the parables will reveal or conceal the kingdom of God to someone? What is the determining factor? Well, I remember as a kid growing up with, uh, and it, this is probably still the case, although we don't eat a lot of cereal, um, I remember as a kid that a lot of the cereal boxes would go through these, these kind of deals where they would put secret codes, hidden messages on the back of the box. And what you needed was a, a decoder. And the decoder was in the bag of cereal. I think now they put it outside the bag, like in the box itself. But back in my day, back in the 1980s, when I was eating Fruity Pebbles, they were inside the box. And so you had, you had two options. You could either take the, the, the cereal and dump it into a big bowl so that you could uh, get the decoder out. And actually, in between services, um, a friend came up to me and said, there's another, another option. You could just flip the bag over, open the bag up. I wasn't that smart, so I didn't do that. I had two options. Dump it into a bowl, and then you could get the decoder out. I never took that route. Or you could open the bag and dig your hand all up in there and get that decoder out. I mean, back in the 80s, you know, we... We weren't as concerned about germs, I guess. Nobody really yelled at me for that. Um, and I didn't want to create more dishes. So that was my route. Now, once you found the decoder, you could decode the secret message on the box. It might have been a dial. It might have been like uh, a little uh, piece of material that you had to put over that allowed things to connect the right way so you could see. The message was typically something profound, amazing, life-changing like this. Kids, don't forget to tell your parents to buy more Fruity Pebbles because they are an excellent source of vitamin D and they contain 11 essential vitamins and minerals. You know, something that's life-changing like that. Now, when it, when it comes to Jesus' parables, you, you need something to decode them. But, but the decoder is not some cheap dial that is buried in a cereal box and it's, it's not some, something hidden within Leonardo da Vinci's artwork like in Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. The key to understanding Jesus' parables, what a person must have in order to understand them, is the ability to hear. And by hear, I'm not referring to, to hearing the parables simply with your ears. 
a, a different type of hearing is required to understand Jesus' parables. The importance of hearing is, is mentioned throughout this morning's passage. You probably picked up on this. Uh, in verse 3, Jesus says to the crowd, listen. There's an exclamation mark in our Bibles. Uh, the, the tense in Greek is, is this, this pronouncing, this, this command, pay attention. It's not a polite request. This is an exhortation for those in the crowd to pay careful attention to what Jesus is about to say because what he's going to say is of the utmost importance. It's like when, when a teacher gets up before the class, the, the class knows there's a test coming up, the final's coming up, and they say, listen, class, what I'm about to teach you is of, it's, it's going to be on the test. So you need to pay attention. This is important. Write it down. Make note of this. Memorize this stuff. It's going to be on the test. That's what Jesus is getting at with this listen. Then in verse 9, Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, it's, it's not that some of the people in the crowd were missing their ears or were deaf. I mean, there could have been some deaf people in the crowd, but that's not what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is saying that there are two types of hearing. There is a hearing that goes only as far as the eardrum, and then there's a hearing that goes past the eardrum. You don't even need an eardrum for this. It goes right to the heart, and it changes the heart. That's the hearing that, that Jesus is getting at in this passage. In verse 12, Jesus describes those who hear only in, this, in the first way as people who hear but do not understand. Paul, Paul speaks of the same type of hearing in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He describes it in another way for us. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You need the Holy Spirit to understand these parables. There is a hearing that comes from the Spirit, that changes the heart. In verse 20, Jesus describes those who hear in this way as those who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. This is the type of hearing that is required, one that produces faith and leads to fruit. Now, having considered the, the grand purpose of the parables, that is, they are to reveal and conceal. Jesus uses them to reveal and conceal the kingdom of God. And having considered what is necessary to truly understand them, we are, I think, ready to consider the parable of the sower. Jesus says that the seed is God's word. Now, this does not refer to God's word in a general sense, just, just vaguely God's word. Uh, John 1.14 tells us that God's word ultimately culminates in his son, that, that he is the capstone, he is the, the, the one that all of the scriptures point to, that Jesus Christ is God's word to us in the flesh. In John 5.39, Jesus says what I've just already quoted, that the scriptures bear witness to him. So, to, so to, to see the word here is, is to understand that this is God's word to us about his son. It is the gospel, the good news that Jesus, who is God and the king of God's kingdom, is also the savior who came as a man to die on the cross for sinners. It is the good news that all who, who in repentance turn away from their sin and in faith turn to and trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins will be forgiven, they will be saved, and they will be brought in. They'll be ushered in. They will be adopted into God's family, brought into the kingdom of God. This is the, the word that is, that is being spoken of. Christ and his gospel is the seed that is being sowed in this parable. Now in his explanation, Jesus does not tell us exactly who the sower is. But if we know scripture, we know how God works, we know where salvation comes from, uh, we know that the sower refers to God. And 
ultimately to anyone that God uses to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. After all, it is God who is the true sower, having given us his word. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tell, tells us that he gave us his word first through the prophets and then through his son. And it is God who has given us the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. This is not an invention of man. A bunch of authors over hundreds of years did not come up with this plan and then kind of keep on passing it on uh, to, to make this, this book's book and, and we're not able to, to piece it together so it all points to Christ ultimately uh, because it was their own invention. This is a work of God. This is a blessing to God's people. He has given us his written word and it all ultimately comes to us from God. God has given it to us. Uh, God is the sower. This can be seen in what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. He writes, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. I love that. Paul is saying like, you're a shovel. I'm a shovel. I'm a, I'm a hole that's tilling the ground. That's what I am. But it is God who is the ultimate sower. Maybe now you're one of those big, huge machine tillers, you know, tilling in the backyard. But ultimately, God is the one who does the sowing. He uses people, but he is the grand sower. Now this brings us to the soils. In the parable, the sower sowed seed that fell on four different types of soil. These soils represent four different responses to the gospel and they describe the condition of the heart behind each response. That's what the soils represent. Now before we consider the soils in greater detail, I want to ad address how this parable should rightly be applied. Normally the application goes on through the exegesis, that is as I try to unpack the passage and explain it, I'm trying to apply it, or it comes at the end. But I think that it's essential that you hear these things before we dig into the soils, before we see and understand better what these things mean. I think putting these things before you and ha you having them on your mind, hopefully in your heart, is going to help you best and rightly apply this parable. Though we should certainly, here's the first one, though we should certainly desire to be good soil, the point of this parable is not be good soil. That, that's not what we should take. That's the wrong interpretation of this parable. Go, hey you, be good soil. Now we should want to be good soil, but Jesus does not tell his disciples to do anything in this parable, even in his explanation. He doesn't command them even to sow. He's going to, and that can be, uh, be understood through this passage and applying it to us, which we'll look at later. See, the thing about soil, and it's equally true of our own hearts, which the soils represent, is that soil can't change itself. Amy and I have a vegetable and fruit garden in our backyard. We live in a part of New Berlin that is heavy on clay, and low on good topsoil. And so uh, what we found is that without us doing something to our soil, our soil would not be good soil to grow fruits and vegetables in. And so every year, uh, I, I get out there and I mix into that soil some fertilizer. We have a, a compost system. We encourage our kids to keep all the scraps. Uh, in the winter, we tend to throw them out because we don't want to put them outside. Um, and, and, and yet we're doing all this collection. We're buying fertilizer. We're, we're mixing in the soil. And by doing that, we change the soil. If I left the soil as it is, we would produce very little, if any, harvest. Uh, that would be unfruitful. If we did that, that would be foolish. It'd be a waste of money, a waste of time, a waste of water, of resources. So every year we add the, the fertilizer and the compost. We are the ones 
who change the soil. The soil does not change itself. Likewise, only God can change a heart. As we make our, th- our way through this parable, if you believe that you are not good soil, but the soil on the path or the, the rocky soil or the thorny soil, the answer is not, go home and make yourself a better soil. Go and change your heart. What you need to do, an application to be made, if you realize as you make your way through this path, maybe you, you've professed faith in Christ uh, for a long time. You've been going to church for a long time, but as we make our way through this parable, you get the sense that you're not the good soil. That's the Holy Spirit working on your heart. Don't go and try and make yourself good soil. Here's, here's what you need to pray. Cry out to God that he would show you, yes, your sin, but ultimately the Savior, Jesus Christ. That he would reveal to you the greatness and the glory of Jesus. Ask him to show you who Jesus is because Jesus alone can save you and only the Holy Spirit can change your heart. So don't go try changing your heart. Yes, you need to read the Bible, come to church, be in fellowship, be praying. But if you're not a Christian, you need, you need God to change your heart. Just like a soil, my, the soil in my backyard needs me to add some fertilizer. God needs to change your heart. A second application has to do with preparation. Remember, Jesus only a short time before this called and appointed his 12 disciples. So much of his ministry focus is on preparing his disciples for gospel ministry. Their great task would be to proclaim the gospel, make disciples of all nations, and build Christ's church. Remember the Great Commission? Go and, and make disciples of all nations. Remember that? And that's going to be ultimately handed to the, the, the disciples, the apostles, and they're going to carry that out. And, and we're fruit of that. And now the church is entrusted with that same mission. So we're we called to send people out to, to plant the church here in America and, and, and plant churches in Waukesha and, and do work here, gospel ministry here, strengthen the church here, but also to send missionaries to Africa and to Brazil, and to Albania. We're, we're called to do this. So the same calling uh, is going to be ours, and so this parable can be applied in the same way as preparation. As the disciples went out and proclaimed Christ's death and resurrection, they were going to encounter these four different responses to the gospel that we find in this parable. By telling them the parable of the sower, Jesus is preparing his disciples. He is getting them ready for the joys and the sorrows of gospel ministry. The same application then can be made to us and is for us. For we too will encounter these same responses when we share the gospel. Now, this won't make it easier for us when people who we love, who we pray for, who we share the gospel with, who, who we worship alongside, who profess faith in Christ, who become members of the church, later on turn out to be false converts. This, this parable isn't meant to make it easier or, or less hard on our hearts but it, it does do something important. Uh, it, if you think about uh, a road sign and its purpose, especially like if you're driving on the road and you're coming through unfamiliar territory and there's one of those road signs, you know, with like the big squiggly line and you're thinking, okay, if the road's like that, I'm in trouble, right? That yellow sign, big squiggly line going back and forth like that. But that road sign is there so that the, the driver on that road would know that they need to slow down and be careful because the road ahead is dangerous. This parable serves much like that. Brothers and sisters, it's going to be hard. You're going to face persecution. You're going to face uh, rejection when you share the gospel with people. Some will at first seem to respond rightly. They will hear it, at least outwardly. There'll be something there. But then in the end, they'll turn out to be false converts. 
but ultimately that, that squiggly is going to come to some straight road. It, you're going to see some fruit. God's going to do some great things. He's going to save people out of darkness, redeem them, bring them out of the grips of Satan and, and out of hell and bring them into his kingdom. So this is that type of, of work in this parable. This is one of the ways we're to apply it to us. This is prepar- preparation. It serves to help us fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and to continue sharing the gospel even as we grieve over those who abandon the gospel. It has happened throughout church history. It's happened in this church and it will continue to happen. There's some in this room who will abandon the gospel. So this parable helps us to have some bearings to make our our way through that. Now in a sense, everything that happens in the rest of the book of Mark, in the rest of the book of Acts, and in the rest of church history can be then understood through the lens of the parable of the sower. The gospel is sown. Some will immediately reject it. Others will seem to receive Christ, but be false converts. And others will hear the gospel. They will believe the gospel. And the gospel will cause there to be fruit from their lives that glorifies God. And now we come to the first soil. Uh, This soil is the soil on the path. The seed that fell on the path did not take root because of the hardness of the soil. And so the birds came and devoured the seed. The soil represents a person with a hard heart that has been hardened by sin. And so when God's word is shared with them, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word from them like a bird that devours a seed. One of the greatest enemies of the farmer is the birds. So they put up scarecrows out to try and keep the crows and the other birds that will devour the farmer's seed away. And that's the the picture of, of Satan that Jesus gives to us. He's like a bird that comes in. He swoops in and, and, and on the hard heart where that word doesn't dig down deep and, and, and there is no root, the, the bird comes in and, and takes away and devours God's word. This soil represents those who reject, despise, and oppose God's word. They have no desire for Christ and they refuse to submit to him as their Lord. Now we can, even in our own lives, think of various examples of people who we know and we love who get upset when we try to share the gospel with them. This would be those with a, with a, a hard heart. You go to, to a, a holiday party, Christmas. You open your mouth and, and they say, no, no, not here. It's Christmas. Do you know why we're here? I don't want, let's not get into that. Christmas is about family. No, it's about Jesus. And so I, I, I'm a Christian and I want to tell you about Jesus because it's Christmas. Going to Thanksgiving. Who are we thanking? Just vaguely the air, just in general. I'm thankful. Who? You have to thank somebody. (laughs) And so you open your mouth. The Bible maybe is is out. You quote some scripture. You try to tell them about Jesus and shut your mouth. That's that's a hard heart. That's, That's the soil that is on the path. This group would also include those who make it their goal to oppose Christianity. Outwardly, they, they, they hate it. They're petitioning the government. Shut this down. Don't let this happen. Don't let that happen. It would include many in groups like ISIS and others like ISIS that wish to kill God's people and destroy God's word. There is also a great example, if you would call it that, of the heart that this soil represents in, in Scripture, in in a group that is encountered repeatedly already. We've seen this group over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, and that is the Pharisees. Consider how the Pharisees responded to Jesus Christ's preaching. They they didn't have ears to hear Jesus. Their hard hearts hated Jesus. As he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, he's he's calling people to repent and and to trust in God. He's making known the, the riches of God's grace. They are planning to destroy him. 
Satan seems to have uh, his grips on the Pharisees, at least most of them. Satan always seeks to oppose the gospel. He hates the good news about Jesus, and he is a liar, a thief, and a murderer, the scripture tells us. And yet, Satan cannot beat Jesus Christ. He cannot win. Jesus will win. We know this because of the cross and the empty tomb, the empty grave, which we've just sung about. That's a, that's a rallying cry. That's a gospel ballad, those words. He cannot win. It's been proven at the cross and through the empty tomb. And so even, even though as we feel pressure, we look around at the world and, and we think, man, man, it's going to hell. No, it's not. Jesus has come. His kingdom is advancing even when we don't see it and especially when we don't feel it. Jesus will win. The next two soils are, are different from the first in that initially there seems to be some progress, some gospel progress. However, they both result in the very same negative outcome as the first soil. Jesus says that the rocky ground refers to the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This soil describes a false conversion. People who seem to hear as evidenced by their initial joy, their feelings coming out in response to the gospel, but they do not truly hear. There's no true change in their hearts, only a a temporary change in their feelings. They may like even hearing sermons. They, They might talk about the gospel. They might even be moved to tears during a worship service. But there is no real relationship with the God of the Bible because there has been no real work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. These people are not rooted in Christ. And so when they face hardships in life or persecution because of Christ, people say, you're you're stupid, you're a fool. How could you believe that that gospel? They, They shrink back and they eventually abandon the gospel. Their joy fades away because their joy was not a true Christian joy which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Instead, it was an imposter joy rooted in something other than Christ. And so when things get hard and their joy fades away, they will fall away. They're they're seeking joy, not Christ. Spiritually, we might think of them as being something like a, a bouquet of cut flowers in a vase. For a while, these people will look really good. They might even smell good to us. They, they might seem to have the fragrance of Christ, but they are in the end, spiritually dead, and like cut flowers, they will eventually wither away. Uh, Jesus then goes on to explain the meaning of the thorny soil. It represents those who, like the rocky soil, seem to initially respond to the gospel in a positive way. They don't, like the, the hard soil, the, the path soil, uh, immediately kick it away, the word of God. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This soil then represents another false conversion of someone professing to repent and believe in Christ, but not truly being born again. Now the difference between this soil and the rocky soil and the the person that this soil represents compared to the rocky soil is that, that these people do not fall away because things get hard. They don't fall away because they face suffering, trial, cancer, um, somebody that they care about leaves them or dies. That's, that's not why they, they abandon the gospel. Instead, the heart represented by the thorny soil does not cling to Jesus because they're too busy clinging to the world. Their hands are full. They, they love stuff and worldly things more than they love Jesus. They can't grab hold of the cross. 
because they're grabbing hold of the world. Jesus lists three different reasons for the gospel not taking hold of this person's heart. There's something like poisons. Like if somebody were to, to come into our yard at night and, and pour on our tomato and our cucumber and our zucchini and our pepper and our beans and uh, our, our, our plants, they were to, to pour poison onto our plants, well, it would kill the, the, the seedling that's growing up before it would produce any fruit, any harvest. Well, these, these three reasons that Jesus gives are, are like that. The cares of the world is the first. This would include career, fame, sports, the Packers, family, relationships, houses, cars, hobbies. These things, the cares of the world, even good things, are, are what controls the heart of those who are part of the thorny soil, the thorny soil represents. Then Jesus goes on to give us a second poison, the deceitfulness of riches. That is, these people love money more than Jesus. And lastly, he gives us the desire for other things and not for God. Simply put, the thorny soil represents a heart that is more captivated by worldly things than they are by the surpassing greatness and glory of Jesus Christ. They they don't see Jesus as most precious. They see stuff, cars, family, whatever it is. You name it, they have an idol, and that idol is who they truly worship. This person loves the world, not Jesus. So despite their profession of faith, even though they might go to church and hang out with Christians, they might even be able to speak Christianese. You know what I'm talking about? Like work in the word grace or blessings to you or, or picked up on the lingo. Uh, even though they have this ability to speak in this way, the word of God never truly takes root in their heart. It's all just surface and, it is, and the word of God is eventually choked out. There are many people in Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches, even some here today, who think they are Christians but are really rocky or thorny soil. Now, sometimes I talk to Christians who are like, oh, man, that just frustrating. People who, who proclaim to be Christians and yet it's clear by their lives that they're not. I get that. that, that that's concerning and that needs to be addressed, but they should be here. All right? Not as far as like us saying, yes, they're members of the church and, and we recognize their profession. We, we want to avoid that and sometimes we can't. It's going to happen where they sneak their way into the membership of the church. However, uh, we too were once, I know I was, rocky or thorny soil. You would have pushed me, pressed me. I would have fought you on this. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm a believer. Yeah, I, I love fooling around with my girlfriend and I love sports. Yeah, if you really want to break down more than Jesus. And I'm living for myself, but man, I'm a Christian. I'm, I, know, I know theology. I went to a private school. You know, I was baptized, all these things. Look at this. So they're duped. They're fooled. And, and, and we want God to change their hearts. We want them here. We don't want them as members in the church, but we want them here. And we want God to change their hearts. Matthew 7, 14 tells us that this is going to happen. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Many people will be on a path and think they're on the right path, but they will not be. They're on the wide path, not on the narrow path. Those represented by these two soils are self-deceived. They think they are truly Christians. And there are few things more dangerous to Christ church than a non-Christian who thinks that they are a Christian and, has, and who has convinced other Christians that they are indeed a Christian. It's dangerous for their own soul and it's dangerous for all those who come in contact with them because they're going to confuse the gospel. Maybe this person's even sharing the gospel. It's dangerous. God works through it, uses it. You know, many false converts have shared the gospel and God in his grace has brought these people who hear the gospel from their lips 
into his church. But this can be dangerous, confusing, both to non-Christians and to the Christian. But I think it's most dangerous because though they need most to turn from their sin and go to Christ, they think they've already done that. They think they're already justified. They desperately need to cry out, but they're resting in their own works. Because these people likely had a conversion experience. They went and responded to an altar call. They may have raised their hand when a preacher asked if anyone wanted to become a Christian. And, and okay, then I'll lead you through this prayer. Close your eyes, everybody. No, why would we do that? If we're going to do something like that, anybody want to become a Christian? Well, then praise God. God has saved your soul. This is not a time to to hide anything. This is a time to rejoice and celebrate what God has done. Maybe uh, they've um, prayed the sinner's prayer multiple times. They've asked Jesus into their heart 10, 20 times. They've marked on a card that was passed out to them that they have now trusted in Jesus. Maybe just to be sure they did all of these five things and many more other things. But their conversion experience and and feelings have deceived them and they are on the road that leads to destruction. That's a scary thought. People think they're going to heaven and Jesus said, you know, there, there will be many who cry out to me, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I, do, I did not know you. I do not know you. Away from me. That's a scary, scary thought. Experiences and feelings without true faith in Jesus are meaningless. We live in a culture that has elevated experience and feelings above everything else, above God's word, above truth. When our feelings uh, contradict what God's word says, oftentimes our feelings trump what God's word says. And that is, that is wicked, that's of the devil. It's not how we as Christians should live our lives. Now they matter. We, sh- we, we should hope and pray that God would help us to experience in great and awesome ways who he is, experience his love. Yes, yes, yes. And feelings matter. You know, joy, I'm pursuing joy. I'm, I'm one of those that thinks the Christian life is a life of joy ultimately. Even in the difficult seasons, God brings joy through them. But that's not what it's all about. They are without true faith meaningless. For a person is not saved by experience through feelings, but by God's grace through faith in Christ. I think that's a helpful statement. For a person is not saved by experience through their feelings, but by God's grace through faith in Christ. The last of the soils Jesus calls the good soil. It is the only soil that produces a harvest. It represents the true Christian who not only professes to have faith in Christ, but also possesses faith in Jesus Christ. For someone to be good soil, the gospel has to take root in their hearts. And if it does, it will produce fruit. This is the distinguishing characteristic of the good soil. It bears fruit. Jesus tells us that the seed that was sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Now, it's not that bearing fruit is what caused the person to be good soil. Good soil produces good fruit. Bad soil doesn't. That's not what made them a Christian. That would be salvation by fruit, or to put it in another biblical word, by works. It's that someone who is genuinely saved by God's grace through faith in Christ will, like a seed sown in good soil, produce fruit. It's, a, it's a, the natural outcome. You think about a seed, a, a, a seed that is planted in good soil, a tomato seed. What's naturally going to happen if it's cared for and tended to? It's going to produce tomatoes. The same goes for the Christian. What is the, the natural, the the, the the thing that's going to happen just because this is what always happens when when God saves somebody, there's going to be fruit. 
When God changes a heart, when they believe in Christ, they're going to produce good works. Now, this brings us to the important question, what does this fruit refer to? What is, what is the parable getting at? Now, the scriptures speak of so many different fruits. You go to the, the fruits of the Spirit, you could look at the commands that, that Jesus gives to his people. There, there's so many different ways to look at the fruits that are, are being mentioned here. Uh, but I found, uh, I've, I've mentioned this, um, this man before and his commentary to, in different sermons, and I want to commend it to you. J.C. Ryle has a great list of what the fruits uh, can be summarized as being. Uh, it's, it's almost like a devotional-like commentary. It's short. It's, sometimes it's a page or two long, and, and he just gets right at the heart. He has a great way with words. So I commend J.C. Ryle's commentary on Mark to you. Uh, but this is the list that he gives in his commentary of the fruit that will come. Sin will truly be hated, mourned over, resisted, and renounced. I love that. This person will hate their sin. Hate it. He goes on to say, Christ will be truly loved, trusted in, followed, and obeyed. You see, the, it's not like the other soils that produce nothing. But Christ will truly be loved, trusted in, followed, and obeyed. Holiness will show itself in all their life in humility, spiritual mindedness, patience, meekness, and charity. In the heart represented by the good soul, there will be something that can be seen because the work of the Holy Spirit cannot be hidden. I, I hit on this point often because it's so important and helpful for us to remember. If the triune God comes and resides in somebody, he can't help but change people. The Holy Spirit doesn't come into people just kind of hang out on the couch. He comes to renovate, redeem, and sanctify, purify, so that that heart that was once addicted to sin and in love with the world can now be addicted to Jesus and in love with Christ and worship him with the rest of their lives. There is a change, a noticeable, it's sometimes hard to see, sometimes it's more gradual in some, remember 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, it's not the same in everybody, but there's going to be change because the Holy Spirit cannot hide his works. That's what he came to do, to, to make Christ known and to glorify God. The amount of fruit will vary, but there will always be visible repentance, faith in Christ, and a holy life. That's the mark of the good soil. Now, I've already made a few applications from this parable. Remember, uh, this is not to be applied as, go be good soil. That would be wrong application. And I also reminded you and, and hopefully you've seen that this is a, a preparatory means that Jesus uses to help us be prepared, especially for false conversions. How do we navigate those waters as we face them? What, how do we, we steer our hearts in the right directions? Well, Jesus said this is going to happen. Remember that. Uh, I've already given you those, but I want to end with one more, I think, important application. In light of this parable, church, we are to share the gospel generously and we are to share the gospel indiscriminately. This parable does not teach us how to test soil before we sow seeds so that the gospel would take root. We're not to determine who is the good soil before we open our mouths and share Christ with people. I've mentioned this before as well. Uh, sometimes I'm tempted to look at people and say, I think they're, they're good, they're good soil. They're smiling at me. They're friendly. Oh, they're, they're whistling. Perfect. Good soil. And those who are grumpier, who, who maybe kind of give me one of those, mm, when I'm with my kids in the store and my kids are, are, are in need of some discipline uh, or just having fun, you know, they're, they're just grumpy people. And I, I, I tend to kind of look at the outward, but that's not what this parable is getting at and that would be wrong for us to do. 
As we see in this parable, God makes his word known to all types of people. Even to the bad soils, he makes his word known. Even to those who who reject his word, he makes his word known. God's word will not return to him void, Isaiah tells us. God will accomplish through his word and spirit all that he has planned to accomplish. And the truth is, we are not good determiners of soils. We are likely to, at times, consider someone to be hard-hearted and put them in the category of the soil on the path and be wrong. I mean, think of the Apostle Paul. I think most of us, pre-meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, would say Paul would be described as bad soil. He would be the, the, the soil on the path, persecuting the church, hating Christ, rejecting him. And yet, God changed his heart, made him good soil, so that for God's glory, Paul's life produced much fruit for Christ and his kingdom. And so we, church, are to sow the seed of the gospel. We are to share Christ with anybody and everyone we can. This is part of the call of God's people. It's a significant task that God has given only to his church, his people, entrusted us with the gospel. Why? Because as Romans 10, 17 teaches us, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Someday I want to put that, if we get a new pulpit, right there. Faith comes from hearing. The parable of the soul reminds us, church, that the kingdom of God will advance through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how it advances. Good works, they, they color, they, they help people to, to see the glory of Christ, but it is through the preaching of the gospel that the kingdom of God advances. Though at times when Christ is proclaimed, it will seem like little to nothing is happening. Some will be rejecting the gospel outwardly, say, that is foolishness. Others will seem to be receiving it, and then over time, eventually it turns out that that they were false conversions. They abandoned Jesus, but still, others will believe. Others will be added to the people of God. They will become our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we will worship God with them for all of eternity, enjoying him. There will be a tremendous harvest. Church, you and I and every true believer is evidence of this glorious reality. It was God, the Holy Spirit, who changed your heart through his word. And that should encourage you to continue to press on preaching the gospel, even as we go through trials and struggles and face persecution, and even as people we once thought were brothers and sisters abandon the gospel. Maybe God will bring them back. But look at what he has done in you and in your brothers and sisters. He is to be glorified. Let's pray. God, we recognize you as the great and true ultimate sower. Lord, we praise you this morning as we, we, we think about and we see in this parable our own lives. We were bad soil, many of us the soil on the path, and yet you changed our hearts. And ultimately, we're not bad soil. We were good soil because of your grace. You gave us ears to hear, and you changed our hearts. Father, we praise you this day for your, your salvation is your salvation and not ours. You have given it to us and now we can say it is ours because of your grace, because of Christ's finished work at the cross. And Lord, we can't help but ask that you would change the hearts of those who are hard. Father, may they not waste their lives anymore living for, for weak and temporal things, but living and worshiping Jesus Christ. For he alone is worthy of their praise and their lives. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for for giving us your word, which reveals so many things, including how we are to navigate the the Christian life as we seek to press on and, and serve you together. 
May Christ be exalted in the rest of this time of worship as we sing praise to his great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.